Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Episode 220 of The Bowery Boys. New York, and the inauguration of George Washington. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Happy 2017. Yes, happy 2017 to you, Greg, and to you, listeners. As our country turns a new page in American politics, we thought that we would turn all the way back to the beginnings of American government and present to you an appreciation of New York City's role in the creation of modern American government. You know, we have several different shows, Greg, about different periods in New York's history. We have a show on New York during the Revolutionary War and a show on life in British New York. Um, And we have shows, of course, that cover Dutch New York. And we even have one on France's Tavern, which plays a pivotal role in the early days of the United States. Right. But for some reason, um, we've made it up to episode 220 without ever having specifically tackled this period in the late 1780s when New York was the capital of the United States. There was actually a point in time, Tom, where you could just walk down a random street Mm -hmm. in New York and rub shoulders with all the founding fathers arrayed in front of you. George Washington. What, they were just lined up? (laughs) That sounds kind of creepy, actually. No, milling about, walking to and from their homes and Federal Hall, which was the center of government. So, of course, this story will have such guest stars as George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. However, today, what we're going to tackle in part one of a very important two-part series is specifically the lead-up to and the inauguration of America's first president, George Washington. That event took place here in New York City on April 30th, 1789. We'll talk about how he was elected, where they worked in New York City, as well as where a few key figures from this story, where they lived in New York during this period. While most of these buildings do not exist in New York anymore, the streets and the locations will seem very familiar to you. So join us as we take an unprecedented look at New York and the inauguration of George Washington. Okay, Greg, well, that was a nice little patriotic ditty. Mm Mm-hmm. I almost broke out my fife. (laughs) Well, so... 
this topic is immense, right? Mm-hmm. How are we even going to grapple with this in under an hour? Because well, we have to keep it under an hour. Yeah. Well, let's begin, actually, at the end. Or rather, the end, the end of the Revolutionary War. The oh. War for Independence. Okay. Where the British suffered a crushing defeat by the Continental Army, led by General George Washington, at the Battle of Yorkville in 1782. Now, England actually voted to end the war in 1782, but it wasn't officially ended until the Treaty of Paris, which was signed in September of 1783. But when was Evacuation Day again? The the day that the the British forces actually left New York and Washington rode in on his horse? That ceremonial day was November 25th, 1783. So just a few weeks later, when the British officially left New York's harbor forever... And Mm -hmm. the new country forever. And Washington then galloped into town and New Yorkers began celebrating with what they called Evacuation Day celebrations, climbing up the greased flagpole, all of that stuff, right. right? Playing their fifes. Drums and fifes everywhere. You know, America had won its independence, but now what do we do? The Declaration of Independence from 1776 merely described the birth of the new nation, the, the... the bonding together of these colonies, but it didn't lay out the governance. Right. So what was this country even being governed under? Right. What was holding them together? Well, there was a document Uh that was in place that was ratified in 1781, and it was called the Articles of Confederation, uniting the 13 colonies that existed in North America, which were, and I think I should mention them, from north to south, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North and South Carolina, and Georgia. Okay, so these Articles of Confederation held them all together under a governing document. Right, a central government, but one with extremely limited powers by design. After all, the colonists here, the, the rebels, the Continental Army, had just wrested our freedom from a powerful central government. They so, didn't want it replaced immediately by another right, powerful. didn't want to go back to one immediately. Under these articles, there actually was a Continental Congress, you know, during the war that sort of observed and administered the affairs during the war and mm-hmm. held everything together, held the colonies together. And they met in Philadelphia? They met in Philadelphia. So after the war, after 1783, it transitioned into the role of a Confederation Congress. Uh-huh. So the war's over in 1783, and the Confederation Congress is in charge. Right. And since it had already been in Philadelphia, uh, they just decided to carry over the Congress of the Confederation as well. So wouldn't the the new national capital then just be Philadelphia? Well, a certain incident happened a few months before the British left. So, so the Continental Army was victorious by the summer of 1783. But... A certain incident happens that pretty much drove the federal government out of the city for a few years. Let me explain. So throughout the war, Congress had had difficulty drumming up money to pay for the troops Mm -hmm. who were fighting in Washington's Continental Army. You know, Mm -hmm. people weren't just contributing to the war altruistically because they loved freedom. A lot of them joined because they needed money. They wanted to be yeah, they wanted to be compensated. Well, on June 20th, 1783, 200 very frustrated and intoxicated militiamen 
all armed with bayonets, they surrounded Independence Hall while the Continental Congress was in session, holding the doors, holding the politicians inside, keeping them inside until they got their money. And so there was it was a riot that was fomenting outside of the Philadelphia State House, which today we call Independence Hall. So they were actually held hostage? Yes. Now, among those trapped inside was a 28-year-old patriot named Alexander Hamilton, who managed to kind of stave off some of the violence a little bit. Now, what made matters worse here is that the state of Pennsylvania actually refused to immediately intercede to protect the Congress. Why wouldn't they have done that? Well, the reasons remain very unclear. There's several different theories. But long story short, they didn't act quickly enough. Okay, so what did Congress do? Eventually, the men were driven away and and Congress stormed out of town. The long-term effect of this particular incident is that these architects of our new nation here really couldn't rely on a state to shoulder and protect a federal entity that would be located within it, right? What needed to exist was a neutral area or a federal district, one that would have its own dedicated support and security, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to like you don't want to place all that burden onto one particular state. Uh-huh. Another consequence, I guess, is that they left Philadelphia. Yeah, so that in the short term, the immediate result is that they got the heck out of there. And where did they go? Well, they floated all over the place, actually. I'm, I'm just envisioning, like, wandering congressmen. <laughs> well, kind of. They were driven from place to place, almost like vagrants, and sometimes literally treated as such. You know, they went to Trenton, they went to Princeton, and they had to meet and were housed in very mediocre accommodations. Mm -hmm. There was no Hampton Inn to welcome them with (laughs) with a free breakfast. And to compound the situation, this Congress that was made up of this motley group of states couldn't decide whether their permanent headquarters should be in the north or the south. They thought that it should probably be someplace that was sort of in the middle, something Mm -hmm. that was easy to reach uh, geographically. But choosing the specific location also had implications in terms of slavery, free states versus slave states. So Mm -hmm. this was a really big issue for this new nation to deal with and something that they really didn't, they they weren't equipped to to really answer at that point. This wasn't just about them like getting around and they wanted something central, which by the way, Pennsylvania is the middle colony of the 13 colonies. So So it it made sense for that. And that year in 1783, the Confederation Congress had actually decided on having two capitals, uh, one near Trenton, New Jersey, and one on the Potomac River. But obviously, that didn't happen. Uh, And the next year, they scratched that plan and decided just to have one capital near Trenton, New Jersey, and that they would reside in New York City until the capital was ready for them to move into. Did they even start building anything in Trenton? No, because the the South was so unhappy about that plan that they actually held up funding of any of the construction. So Congress would end up moving to New York in 1785 with this kind of plan to Mm -hmm. develop this other capital. But they were just sort of stuck here indefinitely until they could decide on where to put it. What I find amazing about this decision, though, is 1785. The British had occupied New York for several years and left just a couple years earlier. The city was a mess. It's extraordinary that anyone thought that New York would be prepared for this new function. 
It was just getting back on its feet. The infrastructure was still very poor at this time. There were even a number of buildings that had been destroyed in the fire of 1776 that were as of yet unbuilt. Including Trinity Church, which was still standing at the end of Wall Street in ruins. Most of the city was still situated below the area of Collect Pond. And while many of the estates in Manhattan that had been owned by the British that were up and down the island of Manhattan Mm -hmm. were now abandoned and were raggedy messes. And the population at the time is about what? About 30,000? Yeah. In that ballpark, many, in fact, were still British. People who just wanted to stay because this was their home. On the other hand, there was a great symbolism with the federal government coming back to New York and taking New York back, Mm -hmm. you know, literally and also sort of metaphorically, Mm -hmm. you know, returning it to a great city of the United States. Okay, so this Congress descends upon New York, but where are they even going to meet? Right, they don't, it's not like New York has like, convention spaces everywhere or large <laughs> the auditoriums. The Javits Center is way <laughs> off. Way, way into the future here. The largest structure in town is actually the City Hall at Wall and Broad Street, but it was a super old building. It was built in 1699. This is obviously not today's City Hall building. This is another structure on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. I should add, by the way, that this building, we mentioned it in another podcast, our show on John Peter Zinger and the freedom of the press. For even in the British era, this was a very active building, and there was once a jail in the basement. The City Hall building, of course, would eventually be renamed Federal Hall. Now, I guess given the lack of space... I guess it's a good thing that this Confederation Congress was actually not a very powerful government body at all. The Articles of Confederation had given it little power, and it had few ways to actually raise money to keep in operation. Okay, so not much power, no money. So this sounds like a pretty weak government. Right, I mean, people really considered themselves more citizens of their state, Uh their former colony, as opposed to this federal government, which was still a very new concept. As a result, this Confederation Congress rarely reached quorum of members to actually even do anything. I mean, could you imagine if you were a a fine gentleman uh, who lived down in Georgia, trekking all the way up to New York with its filthy ports, this town in deterioration, to go to work for a tepid group that few actually liked and had little power. You can kind of understand why a lot of these politicians rarely showed up. You could probably find some congressmen today (laughs) who would say the same thing about D.C. I believe there's a a slight echo in modern politics. So this Congress of the Confederation Mm -hmm. limped along Mm -hmm. like this from 1785 to 1789, but with two notable achievements. I think this is what they're best known for. The first one in July 13th, 1787, they managed to create the first new American territory, the Northwest territory via what has been called, of course, the Northwest Ordinance, allowing these former British lands that had been in the ownership of the British crown and allowing them to be sold off and also conveniently a neat way for the new country to make a little money. That territory, that Northwest Territory, Tom, you may... Wait, I th- I've, this is coming back to me from my mm-hmm. history courses. Northwest Ordinance. Can you name the five states? Well, I'm from Ohio. That's one of them. And I think it's my neighbors, right? Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. That's correct. G- give you a gold star. However, 
had Thomas Jefferson had his way, he had come up with a proposal in 1784 of what to do with this land. He had had completely different borders and different names in mind, Tom. Such state names oh, as no. Sylvania, Polisipa. Rolls right off the lip. <laughs> the lip. Metropotamia and Polypotamia. In fact, Ohio was, according to Jefferson's original proposal, was supposed to be called Washington. Really? So that was the first big thing that the Confederation is known for. But the second was essentially the weakness of this government demanded a more powerful version of itself. They couldn't get anything done outside of the Northwest Territory here. So something had to be done. So the representatives of these states met once again, interestingly, back in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, not to maintain a regular government, but to build a brand new one. And from here, the Constitutional Convention, they would craft and eventually ratify the rule book for the United States, the U.S. Constitution outlining how we select a national leader, how we select a legislature. But importantly, it also didn't do certain things like figure out how to deal with the national debt incurred by the Revolutionary War or articulate where to place its permanent capital. Yeah. These, were, these issues were too contentious, and they knew that if they had to debate these things, these states would never actually mm-hmm. ratify the document in the first place. Well, and to add to that, it also enshrined the practice of slavery into the founding document with its three-fifths compromise. Even with these flaws, though, it was a vastly superior document. And it's been agreed upon here in Philadelphia at this convention. Where did it go from here? Well, they took it to the Congress of the Confederation, to the back to in the, New York, to, back in New York, and those members took it back to their respective states to get ratified. Now, during this ratification period, you had Hamilton and James Madison and John Jay putting together a series of articles that promoted the cause of the Constitution and further described in greater detail what the Constitution could do. These would, of course, combined be called the Federalist Papers. And these were extremely helpful in convincing many states to ratify and... uh, And getting the public support behind the Constitution. So with this new Constitution, it would require a brand new Congress. But that means that the old Congress of the Confederation would be eventually dissolved. It would also mean that their meeting place, uh, the former city hall, would need a facelift. And it would get that in 1788 by Pierre L'Enfant. L'Enfant. That's French for... The child. It's funny. So detractors of the early government and those who didn't like Federal Hall Mm -hmm. uh, derisively called it the big baby house. Because of his name. (laughs) So, but because they were renovating this building, well, in the final year, they had to move down to France's Tavern. (laughs) <laughs> so oh, right, that because was, there was work going on. Yes, but not that much. Well, that old Congress would really meet for the last time in November of 1788. Then they would dissolve themselves because they had to go back to their states, and the states had to vote for the new president uh, who would be elected under the new Constitution. But amazingly, the new federal hall would not be ready and, and completed until March of 1789. So there's a five-month period Mm -hmm. Um, where some members, I guess, were meeting around town, but really there was no central government for about five (laughs) months. As a matter of fact, the last official 
meeting of the Congress of the Confederation was on March 2nd, 1789, and it was ceremonial for one member and his secretary showed up basically to adjourn the group forever. Did he have a quorum? (laughs) Only if he was confident inside himself because he was just the one guy here. And you know who he was, Tom? His name was Philip. Pell. That last name may sound familiar, for he is of the Pell family. Really? Up in the Bronx, yes. I'll grant you that. So the following day, March 3rd, 1789, down at the Battery, 13 cannons were fired from Fort George, uh, you know, at Bowling Green, ending the Congress of the Confederation. They went out with a bang. They went out with a bang, and they're going to come in with a slightly... Softer bang. For in the morning, New Yorkers heard cannons once again to welcome the new and improved Congress. Eleven cannons this time. Wait, eleven cannons? They lost two cannons? Well, because not all, what thir- happened? Not all 13 states had ratified uh, the new Constitution yet. Uh-huh. In fact, New York had just done it was the 11th state uh-huh here so they were they were just being they were being accurate in their in their cannonade well <laughs> as one should be really yes, when firing like off cannonballs <laughs> um but new york at that point you know they didn't even need new york for the ratification of the constitution because they already had enough states sign they already on. had enough right so so new york faced this decision of either sign on and be part of this new government or basically secede from this new nation <laughs> And they chose the former. Yes. But even still, with this new exciting government on the way to New York, they still had the same problem with state representatives straggling in. The weather was particularly bad that spring. Mm -hmm. You know, many were were displeased with having to return to New York City. Uh, They were milling around the taverns and coffee shops. There hadn't been enough people to actually reach a quorum. They sound like... (laughs) Pains. Well, I don't know what this says about government, but that the first U.S. Congress, uh-huh. the, the, the first House acted of, like they were hungover on a gray day, <laughs> and met finally had enough people on April first. It took them a month to get enough people yes. in town. April Fool's Day, yes. <laughs> but of course, so an inauspicious beginning. It would take a powerful, charismatic figure to get people to finally pay attention here and respect this newborn government here. If only this new nation had this new charismatic leader. Well, we can tell no lie. We will chop down this cherry tree and and present you with the man who saves the day after this. So, Greg, we left the story with this search, this wild search. Who, (laughs) Who are we going to choose to be this new charismatic leader of this new nation? If there was only some real tall dude with wooden teeth, where are we going to find him? <laughs> well, you could find him back home in Mount Vernon, um, his estate in Virginia, with his wife Martha, hoping that he could quietly retire and get back to his gentleman farmerly ways. <laughs> this would be, of course, George Washington. Oh, yes, George Washington. <laughs> he had stated that he wished to have the ability to live and die a private citizen on his own farm. So he didn't seek out the role of the presidency. No, no. He thought he was too old. And he thought that he also had political opponents who would prevent him from being elected. And plus, he had already stated that he was retired, you know, so he didn't want to come back. He thought his time was over for this sort of thing. But it would become apparent to him, however, that this new nation saw him as perhaps the only person who could satisfy both sides. He was a he was a figure who was popular with both the northern and the southern states. He was an unprecedented figure in this new nation. 
It was an unprecedented nation. <laughs> and, the, and the country had been campaigning for him for many months. And it was in that new constitution, right? That there need In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. ...to be this, this president that was elected... In fact, the year before, on July 4th, 1788, the year before this new Congress starts in, mm-hmm. in, in New York, all over the country, that July 4th was a day for encouraging Washington to accept the role as president. It was a sort of George Washington day. And New York, of course, overdid it because New Yorkers love, especially <laughs> then, to throw a parade. Pomp I mean, and circumstance. Oh, man. They threw a parade that included a statue of Washington Right, being carried down the street under a banner that read, The illustrious Washington, may he be the first president of the United States. <laughs> Could you imagine any individual in American culture today that we would all bandy about and encourage to run in such a fashion? No, I can't. This also seems pretty weird because we had just had a war to get rid of a kingly figure, and yeah. now here we were kind of creating our own homespun. Don't kingly forget figure. that Americans had never existed, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so these new citizens of this new country didn't know what it meant to have a president. Mm-hmm. They had always lived under some kind of a ruler, right, mm-hmm. or some other foreign body, but. But most recently, they had spent quite a while under British rule and under a king. So 
That's what they knew. Their experience was to be under the guidance of this all-powerful figure. So the states then actually did vote. Yes, right? the All next 13 f- states. February mm-hmm. of 1789. Um, so right before you mentioned the new Congress coming to New York, mm-hmm. the month before in February, the state electors were casting votes. In fact, each elector was able to vote twice, right? So everybody got two votes. New York, however, was not able to get their act together (laughs) and choose who would get to be the electors. You know, there was too much politics Mm -hmm. over should they have their Federalists or Anti-Federalists or whoever is going to to actually be voting. So they didn't even vote. New York did not participate in that first election of Washington. So there was more politics in the selection of the electors than there was in the selection of the president. Yes. And the voting took a long time and the counting of the votes took a long time. Because traveling wasn't even easy. It was hard to literally get the votes back up to New York. But to be clear, this was pretty much assumed that Washington was going to be the winner. Like, this was a foregone conclusion. Well, he even was resigned to the fact, even before the votes were all counted, he started getting his affairs in order back home because he knew he was going to have to pack up and move off to New York. Interestingly, even though he was a very wealthy man, Uh, Washington was, quote, land poor, meaning Mm. that his wealth was really in his land and not in his pocketbook. Interestingly, I'm also land poor. (laughs) But you're just all around poor. (laughs) Uh, Well, no, he he even had to borrow 600 pounds to make the journey up to New York. So he took a loan out. Hmm. But finally, in April, they did count the votes. And Washington did receive a vote from each of the 69 electors. Remember, everybody got mm-hmm, two votes. Mm-hmm. Every single person who voted cast at least one of their votes for Washington. Coming in second place, Greg, yeah. was John Adams. And so that would determine who would be the vice, the vice president. president. Right. And I think Adams was a little bit insulted by how distant he was in second place. You know, he, he was always a little bit nervous. About well, they it. used to time this very specifically so that if you placed second, it wouldn't be like a terrible second. So it was still respectable. But he had a lot of enemies by this time. So uh, the vote didn't maneuver itself uh, in a satisfactory way for him. Well, a couple days later... Some messengers from New York reached Washington down at Mount Vernon to tell him the news that he had been elected. Washington accepted the news with a sigh, and he said, in fact, that moving up to New York, he felt like, quote, a culprit going to the place of execution. Did he say that or did he tweet it? (laughs) You know, interestingly, Greg, he did tweet that um, and got zero retweets. He got zero retweets. But when he, but as he traveled up to New York through every town that he went through, yeah. he was met with rapturous praise and celebration. Oh, my God. They couldn't believe, you know, they were so excited. They threw parades. They lavished him with dinners. They dedicated triumphal arches to him, you know, as he was just trying to get through town. Finally, a week <laughs> later, on April 23rd, he Washington arrived on the Jersey side of the Hudson, where he was met by a congressional delegation, and they traveled with him by boat to New York, where he received the red carpet treatment. Wow. Literally, literally. According to an account by Representative Elias Boudinot of New Jersey, there were artillery salutes, blasts of God save the king, and the rolling out of, quote, crimson carpets. Crimson, so crimson carpets, literally red carpets. Here. Yes, rivers and red carpets. It's like the Oscars. <laughs> 
And he was met at the base of Wall Street on the East River uh, by Mayor DeWayne and by Governor Clinton. And he was led through the streets, paraded through the streets up to his mansion, the presidential mansion on Cherry Street, which you'll be getting to in a few minutes. And once there, you know, he had about a week before inauguration to kind of get himself set up. But in the meantime, John Adams is already in town, Mm. making everybody nervous and meeting with the Senate because the Senate is in session and the vice president is the president of the Senate. Because we've already reached quorum on April 1st. And one of the very first things that he was tackling in the Senate was what to even call the president. What should his title be? Because they'd never had a president before. So Adams was all in a tizzy about how to even address this person properly. So take us to Inauguration Day, because it's right here at Federal Hall uh, where it occurs, right? Right. Inauguration Day, April 30th, 1789. The town was absolutely beside itself with with excitement and anticipation, jam-packed with visitors, visiting foreign dignitaries. The harbor was just full of ships from afar who had come in for this magnificent event. And everybody in town on April 30th woke up to a military salute coming out of Fort George at sunrise to kick things off. Washington was preparing himself at home, and he had chosen to dress in a brown suit that was made of cloth from Hartford, Connecticut. It was an unusual choice for him because he was usually a pretty fancy dresser, Mm -hmm. but here he chose to wear something that was domestic, even though he could have worn something imported, silk from Europe, uh, but he stayed loco. <laughs> but he stayed local. Today we might call it tasteful or conservative. Or understated. Understated. Yes. Or just brown. <laughs> and he was obviously promoting American craftsmen. He did dress it up a little bit with his white silk stockings and his silver buckled shoes. And he did carry a silver sword, you know, just for show. He had his own security, but he was carrying um, a silver. Well, he's a general. Right. At 9 a.m., the church bells began to ring, and churches were packed for a special one-hour service where worshipers came together to prayer for divine guidance for this new leader. And meanwhile, crowds outside were beginning to gather around Federal Hall, where at about 10.30, members of this new Congress were heading into the building and selecting a group to go up and escort this new president. Well, a few hours later, 12.30, Washington was met at his home, the presidential mansion, and his entourage was led through the streets to Federal Hall in grand style. They had had horses and carriages, 500 soldiers, a marching band, and, and a VIP list that included foreign emissaries from France and from Spain. This group, just imagine them. Packed streets and this group galloping and marching and rolling through these cobblestone streets and the crowds cheering as he passed. What's amazing is, although none of the buildings exist from this period, the streets, the shapes, and the curves of the streets are all the same. So you can really imagine them being packed with people and you can... And how hard it is to get through. Yes, indeed. But you can visualize the celebration. Totally. He arrived a half an hour later, and he walked past the crowds into the Senate chamber where he was formally introduced to his vice president, John Adams. Formally. Formally. Adams asked him to take a seat um, as he had some prepared remarks to deliver to the president. (laughs) He always had prepared remarks, Mr. Adams. Well, but at this time, I mean, you could have said, sit down, John, because... (laughs) 
he was apparently so nervous and flummoxed that he couldn't even remember what to say. And so finally, he just managed to say, sir, the Senate and the House of Representatives of the United States are ready to attend you to take the oath required under the Constitution, which will be administered by the Chancellor of the State of New York. Which was Robert Livingston. Right. Washington responded to John, I am ready to proceed. So at two o'clock, the whole group heads outside to the second balcony of Federal Hall that's looking down Broad Street there at Wall Street. They chose the upper balcony because it was from here that the maximum number of people Mm -hmm. down below and in surrounding buildings could bear witness to this historic event. This is also perfectly choreographed. Yeah, they had indeed thought of most of the details, but they had overlooked something. No one had thought to bring along an actual Bible for the swearing in. So there was this last minute mad dash around Federal Hall trying to find a Bible. But they found a Bible. Where did they get it? Well, Messenger ran off to a nearby Masonic Lodge because Livingston was a member of the lodge. He grabbed the lodge's Bible and they raced it back up to the balcony and proceeded with this ceremony with the Bible being held by Samuel Otis, the Secretary of the Senate. A Freemason's Bible. A Freemason's Bible. Yes, because Greg loves talking about those Masons. (laughs) And Livingston administered the oath which Washington repeated after him, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And then he leaned down and kissed the Bible. And Livingston, on the verge of tears, shouted down to the crowd, It is done. Long live George Washington, President of the United States. And Washington turned majestically toward the crowd, bowed deeply to them, and the crowd erupted in cheers. But what did Washington say? Well, he didn't say much to the crowd. They returned inside to the Senate chamber, and he addressed... Congress uh, with the first ever inaugural address. All the accounts of it make it sound like Washington was a nervous wreck, like his vice president, because it was kind of a self-deprecating number. Um, He stammered and sort of stuttered his way through it. I have a copy of it. I mean, he starts out, quote, among the vicissitudes incident to life, no event could have filled me with greater anxieties than that of which the notification was transmitted by your order and received on the 14th day of the present month. So, I mean, you see, he, he opened with a joke. <laughs> but no human being had ever gone through what he was doing at no. this point. And they were very well aware of that. And here is the most powerful man in the country who had just led the new nation to victory in the war. Here's this hero, and he's nearly without words. Afterwards, they marched through the streets to St. Paul's Chapel for a worship service because Trinity, just at the end of the block, was still a ruin. And after that, he was taken home where he dined by himself. He dined alone on his first inauguration day because his wife Martha was still down Mm -hmm. at Mount Vernon. And that's how he ended his inauguration day, just by himself? Oh, no, no. It ended with a big bang, with fireworks down at the Battery, and with illuminations around town. You know what illuminations were? All right. It was, it was kind of like a painting of, of George, like on a sheet with lights behind it, correct? Yeah, let's just say that they were highly flammable displays <laughs> yeah. that were out in the public. 
and presented around town. So you could walk around town and see these big illuminations, in this case, big patriotic scenes that were all lit up, including the likeness of Washington. And he watched these illuminations from Livingston's home and also from General Knox's home. And at about 10 p.m., he headed home in his carriage, but the streets were so crowded and crammed with merrymakers that his carriage couldn't actually make it through the streets. And the president had to get out and walk himself home on this historic night. So now we have the president here, Mm -hmm. and we've walked the president home. Now, before we jump into the inner workings of this brand new American government, I think I need to identify a few more points on the map here, because this is... Literally, places in New York. Because this is the story of the birth of American government, but it's still a very New York City story. And... Thus far, we've only identified one place very specifically. Federal Hall. Federal Hall, right. Mm-hmm. And we've also mentioned St. Paul's Chapel, mm-hmm. which was the place where he went to church after he got inaugurated. And what's distinctive about St. Paul's is that it's still there. And you can go to St. Paul's today, and you can see the place where George Washington sat. You can see his little booth there. It's the only building that we're going to be talking about in this story that still exists. But there are many... Because Federal Hall would be replaced, of course, and George Washington's residence, this first presidential mansion, is no longer there. Well, let me start right now, actually, with the presidential mansion. Take me there. Keep in mind that we don't have a White House in a modern sense, meaning a place where official and private affairs can intermix, a building that's designed to combine those two purposes. Mm -hmm. The buildings that are used are places that exist already. They're rented spaces. So thus, they had to be kind of refitted for these brand new responsibilities. The government didn't have time to build a new building for him. Oh, no, no, not at all. Now, Pierre L'Enfant, he would renovate Federal Hall, but it was essentially the same building. Luckily, you had other people involved with the government who already lived in New York and didn't need to do anything. For instance, Alexander Hamilton, he lived in town. Coincidentally, he lived and worked on Wall Street at 58 Wall Street. Just uh, down from Federal Hall. Yeah, so I mean, to, for him to go to work... Talk about an easy commute. Let's <laughs> pick up a bagel and coffee and just walk right in. Just as a aside, Aaron Burr, his uh, frequent rival... And uh, friend. And friend at this period. His frenemy. He lived up at 3 Wall Street. So he lived very near the the ruins of Trinity. In fact, he lived nearer to Federal Hall than Alexander Hamilton did. You could walk between the two houses if one wanted to, you know, in less than 10 minutes. They'd see each other at the neighborhood block party. <laughs> but but if they were going up to Washington's, that was a little bit farther away. Right. So if, so unlike Hamilton, mm-hmm. George Washington didn't have a pre-existing house here that he owned. However, another man did named Samuel Osgood, who lived at 3 Cherry Street. And it was his house that was rented to George Washington and his household for $845 a year. Cherry Street. Cherry Street over by like the base of today's Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, there's there's a trace of Cherry Street a little bit north in the Lower East Side, Mm -hmm. but the area that we're going to be talking about here has been completely wiped off the map. 
Now, Congress spent $8,000 renovating and redecorating the home of Mr. Osgood. Making here. it as, as good as new. As, as, as good as new. Interestingly, Tom, Mr. Osgood, that same year, would be named the Postmaster General oh. of the United States. So, so we're paying him rent, but he then be- gets a, a position. We've clearly redefined what a conflict of interest is over the past few years. Is that pay to play? Or <laughs> pay to mail? COD? What is that? Well, Washington had to be careful with this house and how he conducted himself in the home. He needed to imbue dignity into the position for people to respect him without seeming, of course, like a king. He traveled to and from work from his house in a cream-colored coach with six horses, the most ostentatious ride in town, if you were to see it. Meanwhile, over here at Cherry Street, his wife Martha, who would eventually come to New York, would oversee the household and a massive staff that would include some of Washington's slaves from Mount Vernon, as well as his head chef, none other than Samuel Francis from Francis Tavern. Uh Uh-huh. Francis Tavern, located just down the street from Federal Mm -hmm. Hall. And still there today. Okay, so he lived here on Cherry Street, but did he also work here? Was this his official place of work? Yeah, it served as his office. He didn't have an office in Federal Hall. They didn't have room for private offices So this was the executive branch office of the president. He even had weekly receptions called levies uh, that were held in the parlor from 3 to 4 p.m. where he would receive officials, just Uh people in New York who wanted to meet him. It seemed like it was kind of easy in those early days to sort of like get the shoulder of the president. But that also seems like something that a king might do, right? Receiving his people. Yeah, very pretentious, uh, right? Very similar to these royal receptions, which, of course, they were trying to get rid of that perception. Although they were also just figuring it out. They didn't have many other examples Mm -hmm. to follow. Well, for his part, Washington just didn't see what the big deal was about these. In describing them, he said, quote, Gentlemen, often in great numbers, come and go, chat with each other, and act as they please. A porter shows them into the room, and they retire from it when they please and without ceremony. At their first entrance, they salute me, and I them, as many as I can talk to, I do. What pomp there is in all this, I am unable to discover. Unquote. Now, I have a feeling he had a hard time (laughs) discovering a lot of pomp at all. So he held these levies in the afternoon. Did he have... Did he have official receptions and things at night as well? Oh, yes. On Friday nights, Tom, I think we'd be very into Martha Washington's routes. <laughs> <laughs> they were evening receptions that were very elegant, quite elegant. Um, How do we get invited? <laughs> well, you, first of all, all the invitees were dressed to the nines, and but the latest fashions from France. Okay, so, you know, if we can get in the door, if you have a nice ball gown. But keep in mind, so, and so they would have all these people over in their finery, but this is not a big place. Okay, three of his secretaries actually had to, like, bunk in the same room upstairs. It was a very close quarters. And sometimes this led to some rather unfortunate snafus. Oh, no. Such as? <laughs> well, from, um, uh, from a book published in the 19th century by Benson Lossing called Recollections and Private Memoirs of Washington, 
One unfortunate situation. Quote, Mrs. Washington's drawing rooms on Friday nights were attended by the grace and beauty of New York. On one of these occasions, an incident occurred which might have attended by serious consequences. Owing to the lowness of the ceilings, in the headdress of Ms. McIvers, a belle of New York, took fire from the chandelier to no small alarm of the company. Major Jackson, aide-de-camp of the president, with great presence of mind and equal gallantry, flew to the rescue of the lady and by clapping the burning plumes between his hands, extinguished the flame and the drawing room went on as usual. Unquote. <laughs> so Everything is- back to normal. <laughs> Mrs. McIver's headdress, her plumage her caught on fire. Yes. At, a, at Martha, at Martha Washington's, Washington's route. route. <laughs> so be, that's just like... I like that story because it really, Ugh. you can visualize how small these rooms were. The ceiling was that low that... It was a poor, fire trap. It was a fire trap. So this was the president's official residence in New York City. Yes, this was the first presidential residence. I'm getting a vibe from you that this wasn't the only one. No, but we'll get to his second residence in the next episode. Okay. But before I step away from the domestic living of our founding fathers here, I would be remiss if I ignored, of course, John Adams. Ah, that's right, because the vice president is also living in New York. In fact, he... Did he live in a nervous little house? (laughs) He actually lived in a bigger house than George Washington. He and Abigail were further north and in a house facing the Hudson River at the area of today's Varick and Charlton Streets. Uh-huh, by WNYC's Green Space. That, in fact, that block mm-hmm. was on the land of, okay. of where this house was. And what was the name of this house? The name of the estate. Ah, estate, excuse me. Is Richmond Hill. One of the nicest houses in this area of Manhattan, at least in today's you know below 14th Street area. Mm-hmm. British officers actually lived here during occupation. It was a beautiful place and it was far bigger and much nicer than George Washington's. But keep in mind, they just all rented them privately. This is just the one that they were able to to secure. Yeah. And fr- and from the windows of Richmond Hill, Abigail Adams could look out over the Hudson River oh, or the she, North yeah. River, as they called it. She loved this house. In her own words, quote, in natural beauty, it might vie with the most delicious spot I ever saw. It was a mile and a half from the city of New York. Uh, imagine ho- that. <laughs> the house stands upon an eminence. At an agreeable distance flows the noble Hudson, bearing upon its bosom innumerable small vessels laden with the fruitful production of the adjacent country. Unquote. Such a beautiful thing. This place, Richmond Hill, would also be the place where John and Abigail would have government functions similar to George Washington. They rarely had a chance to mingle, especially in these first few months, the Washingtons and the Adamses. Adams had a carriage with one horse, mm-hmm. not six horses like George Washington. He was Washington. from Boston. <laughs> you know, they're more reserved about these things. Yes. From here and, and throughout the duration of his work at the first Congress, he would write a prolific number of letters and articles from his house here in Richmond Hill, especially with this growing revolution that's happening over in France at this time. You know, he had been the official envoy to France during the war. Okay, so Washington's over on Cherry Street. Adams is here at Richmond Hill. 
Where is Thomas Jefferson? Well, he is not in the picture yet. We're still in the summer, spring, summer, fall of 1789. He's still in France. Uh-huh. He wouldn't arrive until the following year. So really, what we've done here today, Greg, is set the scene, set the mm-hmm. picture of New York in 1789. We have a president, a vice president. We have two houses of Congress who are meeting at Federal Hall. What we've done with this show is set up the players and we've set up the places for this new federal government. But these players had some really serious issues before them. Because the Constitution had left a lot of vagaries about how this new federal government would function. So it was up to Congress to figure out all the logistics, set up the different departments, and really make this thing work. It's time for these men to roll up their sleeves or roll up their ruffles and get to work. (laughs) Pull up their britches. (laughs) And that's what we're going to describe in part two of our look at New York as the first federal capital of the United States. We'll get to that show in two weeks. And to top it all off, there were two specific issues that would almost lead to the collapse of this brand new nation. We'll talk about who brokered a deal and how they hammered out those details here in New York. In two weeks, we'll bring you George, John and Abigail, Alexander, James, Thomas, and the rest of the gang in action. In the meantime, you can check out our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll be posting iconic images of these events, especially George Washington's inauguration. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On this week's episode of The First Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences, the new Bowery Boys spin-off show, which I host, which comes out every other week, alternating with the Bowery Boys, this week's episode actually takes place about 10 years in the future from the events that we talked about today, Tom, with the invention of the first vaccine. A very fascinating and strangely amusing story in certain aspects. One of the main characters on the show is a cow named Blossom. It's a moving tale. (laughs) You can find that podcast the same place as you found the Bowery Boys. And a special thanks to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. Because of your support, we've been able to come out with a brand new episode of the Bowery Boys every two weeks. We have plenty of surprises in store for you for 2017. And we recorded an extra patron special for this episode. Greg and I were at Federal Hall a few days ago, and we recorded in the rotunda and out on the steps. And we'll have that extra for you in the coming days. If you're not yet a patron, you can join with your support at patreon.com slash boys. And thanks so much again for your support. A couple of the details we mentioned in this show are featured in our book, The Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York, that you can find wherever books are sold. So thank you for joining us on this epic journey in American and New York history. We'll bring you part two of this tale in two weeks. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.